Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Multiscale Musings, a podcast from the HETSIS CDT at the University of Warwick. I'm your host, Chris Woodgate. This week, my co-host is Matt Harrison. Matt is a HETSIS student based in the School of Engineering and works loosely in the area of fluid dynamics. In particular, his research focuses on the modelling of transport of chemical substances in porous media. This week, our interviewee is Dr. Gabriele Sosso, based in the chemistry department at the University of Warwick. Gabrielli studied for his PhD at the University of Milano Bicocca before holding postdoctoral positions at ETH Zurich and University College London. He moved to Warwick in 2017. Gabrielli is a theoretical and computational chemist who studies a variety of chemical systems. His main focus is on molecular simulation of disordered systems and phase transitions. Okay, hello Matt, hello Gabrielli. Hello. Hello. Hello, good to see you. Okay, so Gabrielli, before we delve into the science, maybe let's talk a little bit about you, your interests and your hobbies. So our first question is, uh, what what things do you do when you're not doing science? What's, what sort of hobbies do you have and how do you relax? Well, uh, I cycle quite a bit. That's my uh, main thing. Um, at the moment, cycling is interesting, but it's still something that, that we can do. So there's, there's quite a bit of that going on at the moment. Um, I'm also a massive nerd. So everything which is nerdy enough, I, I'm into it from, you know, uh, D&D to Warhammer to all sort of things, uh, uh, I'm in. And again, there's not much time that, you know, you can presently dedicate to this sort of stuff, but it's good to keep it in the background sort of going. So, uh, those are the two main things I would say, yeah. Um, okay. I've got a very important question then. Um, are you a road bike person or a mountain bike person? Um, I, I'm everything. Uh, uh, I, I do I do a bit of both. I do cyclocross as well. I used to do downhill as well. Uh, but since I'm moving to the UK, there are no mountains. So, uh, <laughs> so they, well, they are, but uh, not not not. They're not yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it has been mostly road for for the last few years. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, cool. And do you have like a, a favorite place you've been in? any anywhere in particular that you you remember enjoying or? Uh, well, there's um, uh, my family is from the Dolomites in Italy, which is the uh, okay. eastern part of the Alps. Uh, that's really really good for uh, cycling, uh, particularly in the summer. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's just one one really good place to be if you like cycling. Yeah. It's a bit flatter in Coventry, I assume, compared with the, the Dolomites in Italy. <laughs> well, it's a different experience, of course, but, you know, it's a, it's a good thing is that these are the Midlands, right? So uh, the Midlands are uh, in the middle of everything. So you just cycle a bit further and suddenly you're in Wales, you're in the Cotswolds. So, uh, you can, you know, go up to the Peak District as well. So, yeah, it's not, it's not too bad at all. It's really varied as well, which is really good. Okay, cool. And then maybe a bit more topical. Um, how are you finding working from home? How's the how's the the pandemic affecting you? Are you still productive? Are you still getting on with things? Well, so I think I think as a bottom line, I think it would be stupid for uh, for me to complain in a way because you know both both myself and 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 my wife we have kept our jobs. Uh, no one in the family got the virus, which is obviously uh, the priority at the moment. So compared to what the people that are actually suffering, this is nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. So the practicalities of it, of course, are, are interesting in the sense that we have two kids. So there's a timing is, is a bit of a uh, bit of an issue. 
uh, there's, there's not enough time to do everything that you like to do, but that's fine. You just sort of reshuffle your priorities and get stuff done. Uh, and obviously, you know, my, my research is, uh, 99% uh, computational in nature. The 1% being PhD students that do something in the lab that I don't know what they do. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that's, that's obviously really, uh, really helpful. Um, so yeah, I would say that compared to the experimental colleagues we are doing, we are doing fine. Uh, there is a question of uh, what we are going to do in the long run, but this is the question that everyone has to think about. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not too worried uh, about it uh, at the moment, I would say. Okay. Um, and, and, you, and your kids, they're, they're not too distracting, are they? Can you continue to do your work at just as high a level? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, to, be, to be honest with you, it's, it's good to have them around because, uh, you know, yeah, usually you don't get to spend so much time with them. And uh, they are really young as well. So this is the age when it's actually quite good to be to have them around. Uh, yes, you can be, you can, you can do high level stuff, uh, with, with the help of, uh, noise cancelling, uh, uh, headphones and, uh, <laughs> street rules, uh, uh, and, and all this sort of stuff. But it's, it's, it's definitely doable. It's definitely doable. I would wish for a larger garden. That, that's for sure. Uh, okay. To, to have them grazing outside a bit more. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, fair enough. Okay then. So, so when when we're at university, um, not quite research, not quite a research based question, but in terms of teaching, you know, you're obviously a, a lecturer within the chemistry department. What modules do you teach at the university? What sort of what sort of stuff do you teach to the undergraduates? Yeah. So my my main bit, uh, I would say, is statistical mechanics that I teach to uh, obviously the chemistry people. So that's my main core uh, component. Uh, is a is a big module. It has a lots of lectures and a lots of computational workshops. So it's quite it's quite intense for well for myself, but for the students as well. Uh, uh, is notoriously perceived as difficult as well, which doesn't help. <laughs> but, but we're changing this uh, slowly but steadily. So there's that, and then in year four, uh, I run together with uh, uh, Livia Bartoparta and Ryan Mora. I run the Advanced computational chemistry module, uh, which is basically building on the, on the bits and bobs that, that chemistry students know about computational science, which is not much by the time they reach year three. Uh, it builds on that and it sort of introduced a few more advanced concepts, uh, uh, enhanced sampling, machine learning, uh, and this sort of stuff. Uh, and then I do, um, a few bits here and there, um, sort of complementing with computational workshops, uh, other modules. So I just finished uh, a couple of weeks ago, or last week even, uh, the year three labs, chemistry labs, which obviously because of the uh, current situation could have been done uh, uh, for for real uh, in a in a real lab. So we uh, we did them remotely, and uh, a huge part of that was was to make them computational in nature. So um, yeah, that that's working out quite nicely. I would say. Um, this sort of being able to complement the regular teaching with computational components in a way. Yeah, I think I think that's massive in this day and age, isn't it? I mean, I I studied well, I studied maths and physics at Warwick, and I was based in the physics department, and it was uh, it was always interesting, you know, the kind of the the way that the computational modules complemented what you were doing, and maybe the the more theoretical courses, yeah, and so on. Yeah. Um, no, no, just, 
just keep just keeping with the teaching as well. Um, so obviously you've had to adapt massively with the current situation. But do you think um, these adaptions are actually going to be more positive in the future? So we've almost been forced to go online. And do you think that could, you know, make learning more easy or not? Well, I think I think that's a that's a really key question, uh, not just for for me, but you know, for the entirety of the higher education. It's a question that people are talking uh, a lot about at the moment as well. Because uh, as you said, we are doing this, but the feedback is uh, is surprisingly really good, uh, which which poses the question of you know have been doing have we been doing this right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also, I think that there's the component of this is new uh, and new things. Why is there? Why you know there's there's always some resistance to change. That's true, but because of the situation, this has to perceive like a positive change. So I think that the answer to whether or not this is better, that's, that's a complicated answer. Um, I think that what, what this situation forced us to do, not so much us computational colleagues, but experimental people particularly, is to, is to beginning to tap into the potential of the computational aspect of things, uh, to complement teaching. Because we, 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 we did it anyway, right? That's, that's the sort of stuff that we do. So we didn't have to adapt massively. Uh, I still use, uh, you know, an iPad and, I, and an iPad to do my lectures. I do exactly the same uh, uh, remotely. They just don't see my ugly mug, but that's that's the only difference. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the one thing. Um, another thing that has to be said, I think that you know, obviously in chemistry, in particular, some disciplines are uh, obviously need need a lab, need some hands-on training, so you can't do everything remotely. Uh, if you want to graduate in history, maybe you can do it. If you if you if you're doing sciences and apply sciences, you obviously have to be on site and do stuff. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, some people are claiming that this is a, an opportunity for us to improve, and I think that's largely true. Uh, but I would also say that and this is a very personal opinion, but uh, I'm quite I'm quite old-fashioned in the sense that I think uh, the the traditional lecture format. Uh, is still a massive added value. Because um, one thing that we shouldn't forget about it as well, I think, is, is that the fact that we are we are decent, we are good in doing this sort of stuff, doing teaching and lectures remotely, but uh, the YouTube is full of amazing people giving amazing lectures, right? So if that's the case, you know, why should you even sign up uh, uh, for a graduate course at Warwick? Where, where's the added value? And I think that much of that comes from the fact that, you know, if you sit in a lecture and you interact and you have a proper engagement with the lecturer and the content, that's that's where, uh, you know, things are going to go for the better. So, but yeah, I mean, it's a really complex question. It's a really complex question for sure. Yeah, yeah no, fair enough. Thank you. No, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, then. So maybe maybe moving on a little bit now towards kind of uh, your research, but starting with, with computational science in general. You, you kind of hint, you hinted at it there. So, so for you, what, what kind of draws you to the, to, the the, to the theoretical side of chemistry, to the computational side of things? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I, I'm really fortunate because these are things that I, uh, that I knew uh, I liked from a really young age. Okay. Uh, so there was never any sort of hesitation about what, what I like to do, uh, which I think is very fortunate. So with theory, uh, particular, I, I like my books. Uh, the moment I discovered that, you know, the stuff works with numbers, uh, that was it. Uh, I never looked back. <laughs> uh, and for the computational side of things as well, it's just happened really naturally. I started to tinker with, with Linux when I was about 12 or 13 years old. 
so I, I wasn't even doing it because of uh, of anything science related. But uh, when I when I when I first came to university, I discovered that you can use that stuff to actually do things. Uh, and yeah, that was that was just really natural for me. Uh, I'm also incredibly clumsy, so that that probably helps uh, in uh, <laughs> in deciding which side of things I should be focusing on. And it's not the lad that much I know. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay then. So 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 when you're when you're doing your research, what what kind of well, first of all, what, what hardware do you use? And then maybe a sec, as a follow up question. Do you have any particular kind of software or computational tools that you use day to day, you know, most commonly? Yeah, um, hardware wise, uh, uh, I mean, for the serious stuff, shall we say, uh, uh, we use Linux, uh, myself and the research group as well. Uh, out of laziness, I embraced uh, Mac as the as the tool that, you know, gets me through the emails and the presentations and the admin and the collaborative stuff. Uh, but when it's down to number crunching, Linux, Linux is still very much the thing. I, I hate Windows with a passion. Uh, that, that's, that's a mistake there. Uh, just because it doesn't let you do what you want to do. <laughs> that, that's my take, obviously. But uh, uh, you know, I do appreciate that it's useful for most other people, so that's fine. Um, in terms of software, so that's, that re- relates uh, with, um, with the fact that my research is really varied. So uh, my problem in life is that I like very many different things, and it's the same with science. So it would be difficult for me to just uh, pinpoint one two. Um, if I if I have to pick uh, just just out of you know a, a um, number of hours spent looking at that particular screen, I would say VND, uh, Visual Molecular Dynamics. That's a visualization tool uh, that we use all the times, so notwithstanding what what the project is about. Uh, whether it's molecular dynamics or machine learning or stuff like that, we have to look at things much in the same way that experimentalists look uh, down the microscope. So that's just one tool that we'll be using for a very long time. And it's it's, it's a bit of a glue that uh, brings uh, 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 all the people in the group together as well. Everyone uses WMD. I think it's fair to say that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and then when you say for, for, some, for someone who's not familiar with molecular dynamics, maybe when, when you say visualizing molecular dynamics, what you mean, of course, is you, you have some simulation of a, of a chemical system and what you're doing is visualizing the positions of the the atoms or the molecules yeah 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 absolutely yeah so you have you have these balls and sticks basically they are, they are bouncing around but but they are doing so because you are solving a set of equations that are hopefully uh, close enough to what actually happens in reality uh, <laughs> how accurate they are it's an entirely different question but uh, they are accurate enough that we are of some use uh, to the experimental reality so uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that uh, going on in the group. Uh, but even when you are, because uh, there are some projects in the group that are related to uh, purely molecular structures, so looking at molecules and what they look like and what they do. And in that case, it's not about moving atoms around, but just being uh, able to see, uh, 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 to visualize the molecular structure of something complex. Uh, you need these tools. Imagine, uh, uh, imagine proteins. We do lots of biomolecular science as well. And in that case, you know, the number of these balls and sticks uh, uh, is, is huge. So you have to be able to, to dissect that complexity into sections that are actually tractable. And uh, visualization is, is, is thus essential to, to get that done. Yeah. Mm. No, fantastic. Yeah, very interesting. OK, so, so you sort of hinted there. You, you have some collaboration with experimentalists when you're working or, or how does that interface work for you? 
Yeah, um, I would say that basically 90%, maybe 95 even. I mean, I can't think on top of my end of, of some project that does not involve an experimental collaboration. Um, this, for an, this is for a number of reasons. I mean, um, I do tend to talk to people, uh, which I think is you know, something that is quite useful. Uh, Warwick is a really good place to be as well, uh, because the science faculty is very much sort of localized in one place. Uh, so you can talk to many different peoples across many different fields, and that's really useful. Um, but ultimately, you know, the experimental reality is what drives uh, uh, um, uh, the applications, uh, what drives the in- industrial interest as well. So you have to be able to talk to these people. You have to, to be able, as a theoretician, to find yourself of some use. Um, mm-hmm. there, is a, there is a question of, you know, uh, you can and, uh, and maybe you should if you are, if you are intelligent enough, sort of uh, uh, develop uh, uh, the purely fundamental theoretical basics of, of, uh, of your field. And that's, that's fair. Uh, I don't think I'm that kind of guy. Uh, in the sense that I think that my research is, is, is not that just because the experiments are, absolutely, uh, but it is that because it wants to make an impact. And if you want to do that, then experiments are very much part of this equation, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Um, so, so moving back to um, our computational side of things, so I understand one of your key research areas is machine learning, and um, I know that sort of machine learning is actually one of the one of the few concepts within computational modelling that almost the general public have all heard of. It, there's a bit of a hype around it at the moment. Um, so I'd, I'd like to ask you, as someone that's an expert in machine learning, whether you think this hype of machine learning is justified um, and whether it's going to be as useful as we think it is. Yeah, well, uh, it, it's a really good question. Uh, as you said, it's something that uh, machine learning is something that is percolated throughout the general public. And because of that, the hype train is, is definitely uh, going full speed. Um, I think it's a good thing for science in general, uh, but I also do think that in the next uh, couple of decades, people are going to realize that it's not the solution to everything. Um, which I think, I mean, one thing that we have to be really careful about with machine learning is, is trying not to train the next generation of scientists to be uh, entirely expert in machine learning, but nothing else. Uh, because it's one of these techniques where uh, at a sort of shallow level can be applied without understanding too much of it. Uh, so to me, it actually represents a risk. It's something which is very useful uh, because now it's 2020. We have plenty of data that we can use to, to make predictions and, and all these sort of things, which is great. It wasn't possible 50 years ago. Um, but there is a risk associated with, uh, with the usage of machine learning without actually understanding what's, what's going on. Yeah, you need you need an understanding of of the physical origin of something, and not just the this idea that the computer produces the answer. So it must be right. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And with respect to what I do, I will say that uh, uh, the the machine learning bits in my research I never uh, stand alone. So they do come on top of something else that we do. Uh, say, for example, at the moment we are looking in uh, in uh, uh, in making predictions uh, as to how effective. Uh, cryoprotectants are in uh, limiting cellular damage. So basically when you, when, you, uh, uh, when you freeze down biological material for cold storage for bio, uh, uh, biomedical applications, you have to freeze it. And, and the ice that you form, if it's uncontrolled, it pierces the cells, which is not, obviously not very good. So you add these cryoprotectants, some of them are more or less effective. We want to make predictions about how effective they are. 
but we don't approach the problem just by saying these are the molecules and these these are the numbers. Let's make some machine learning. We want to we want to do simulations of what these molecules do in contact with the eyes, in contact with the cells, and stuff like that. Uh, it's it's about providing the context in a way, right? Not just that, not just by speaking by the numbers, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. So you mentioned one of your kind of research topics there. Um, maybe for sort of the last maybe half or third of the of, of the podcast, um, just to start us off, can you maybe sum up in a few sentences what what your kind of key research areas are for kind of a general scientific audience? What is it that you do at the moment? Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a complicated question because, as I said, that, that there are many things that are going on, and I'm lucky enough to have sort of a, a number of people doing a, a great number of different things. But if if I have to sort of put it all together, I will say that what we mostly do is uh, atomistic simulations of disorderous systems uh, and phase transitions, uh, which is which is obviously a very broad kind of. Uh, um, labeling in a way because disorderous systems is everything which is not a crystal, <laughs> which is which is a lot <laughs> in nature. <laughs> Phase transitions is every time you you shift from uh, I don't know a solid to a liquid or the other way around. So that's also fairly common. Uh, so I don't think that is narrowing down too much. Uh, but <laughs> uh, one one thing maybe to to put things into context is uh, a specific phase transition that we're interested in is is that of water freezing into ice. Uh, and it's something that uh, a number of people in the group are working at the moment in uh, uh, across different aspects. Uh, we are looking at ice uh, uh, forming on top of something. We are looking at things interacting with ice. Uh, we are looking at this cryoprotectant business, as I was mentioning. So it's uh, it's it's interesting because it's different people working on different things, but some of them are even coming together. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 the work on ice uh, involves a lot of molecular dynamics, which again is all about uh, sort of studying the time evolution of molecular systems, uh, which is useful because uh, most of the processes that are involved with ice formation, they are either too fast uh, or happening on either too small uh, length scales for experiments to really have a good look at it. Uh, in fact, both is the question, right? So with, when you have something which is happening on nanometers and, and nanoseconds at the same time, uh, uh, you can add the best microscope ever, but it's really difficult to achieve that time and space resolution. So that's that's where um, uh, our simulations are sort of uh, uh, going for. Um, all of this is, uh, again, very much complemented by uh, the experiments that are going on, some of them in Warwick, some of them overseas. Uh, but then there's a, there are a number of different projects. Uh, some people are working into uh, solid-state uh, material science, they're using machine learning to design potentials. The potentials are things that you use to do molecular dynamics. So everything is sort of linked, uh, but uh, it's different compartments, if you want. So mm. yeah. yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the ice models there. I think it, it, for people who, who aren't that well versed in molecular dynamics, it's amazing to think that actually water, this thing that we see around us every day, is something that we really don't actually have a great understanding of in certain um, phases in certain certain aspects of water, we still don't really have a very good handle on at all. Yeah, no, it's 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 quite incredible because if you think about it, the the the, the sheer amount of uh, investigation that have been devoted to water and to ice, even in the in the past century, is huge, right? So people have been studying this for ages. It's, uh, it has been an, an off topic, if you want, for a very long time, and yet and yet there are things that we don't really understand about water alone. 
there is this, uh, uh, there has been, now it's sold, I think it's fair to say, but this, this recent debate about uh, the existence of a, of a, of another critical point in liquid water. So basically about the existence of a low density and high density liquid coexisting a certain temperature. That is, a, has been a really, really hotly debated uh, kind of point in the, in the literature for, for quite some time. Uh, people think they have not been solved that, but this is recent. It was about maybe uh, five, five years ago. So this is just to say that there are still many very things that, that we don't really know about water. And, and water into ice, is, into ice is, is quite incredibly complicated because it never happens by itself. Uh, it's never water alone turning into ice. It's water plus something else. Uh, and it's that something else that it sort of facilitates the formation of ice. And, and, and having to decide which is the one thing that makes it better or the, or the limits the formation of ice, that's, that's a really complex question. And we are just sort of scraping the surface here, really. Yeah, yeah. So, so in a nutshell, then, can you give maybe some intuition as to why water is so hard? I mean, as a physicist, I think about it. Well, the, pro- the problem is, to me, the problem is these kind of these hydrogen bonds, these very weak bonds that occur between molecules. But is that your, your take on it? Why is it so hard to model this system? Yeah, I mean, at, at the bottom line, one thing that has to be said, I think, is that uh, water is, is, is incredibly complicated because we are studying it that much. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure that, you know, if you pick another molecular liquid and and that liquid will be the one essential for life on Earth, uh, then suddenly you will find that, you know, there will be other many things that we don't know about that particular liquid. So one thing to be said is is that the other one. So hydrogen bonding is actually quite, uh, quite relevant in the sense that the one thing about water is 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 collective motions and collective structure. So because it's a complex molecular liquid. It's usually not just enough to look at one molecule in isolation or to look at the liquid as an homogeneous phase. It doesn't work that way. It's a, it's a complicated liquid because uh, 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 there are differences into the local structure and the local dynamics. And these, and, and these uh, uh, features always uh, and only get worse as soon as you start lowering the temperature because then some other physics uh, starts to, to kick in. Uh, and uh, and it just gets uh, worse and worse, basically. So yeah. yeah. Okay. So 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 maybe maybe as a as a more general question, um, let's say someone is a, maybe a an undergraduate or an A level student, and they're thinking about com- moving into the field or trying to get into the field of computational chemistry. But from your point of view, what what kind of skills should they be developing? What 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 things do they need to be studying, you know, to 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 make an impact and and to move into the field? Yeah, that that, that I think is a really good question because people tend to think uh, that you have to focus on specific uh, uh, contents or specific skills. Why is that? The one thing that makes the difference, at least to me, is is problem solving, really. Uh, that's that's the one uh, uh, key skill that allows you to to solve problems. So that's everything we do, because uh, you know in 2020 getting the skills or the knowledge is, is so easy. It's just not true, right? So if you if you mm-hmm. don't know something, you Google it, and 100% is there somewhere. So it's not about remembering things anymore. Uh, it's not about honing your skills too much as well, because uh, let's say that you invest a lot of time in in, in learning an, uh, a particular computational technique. Say that, I don't know, you want to code in C++ because you think that's useful for science. And it is. Uh, but the the real ability is for you to be able to be uh, uh, shifting from C++ to another coding language. Uh, 
uh, it's it's about being flexible in a way, okay? And that sort of skills only comes when uh, when challenging yourself with things that you're not able to do, right? So that's that's one thing that I would probably uh, suggest to people, and I, and particularly in the UK, I think this is essential because there's a um, there's not a culture that is built around uh, uh, resistance to failure, I believe. Uh, everything is sort of made in such a way that it is achievable and not achieving things is, is bad in a way, right? Whilst I think that in science particularly, even from a really young age, it's important to understand that many things you will never get. And it's about uh, sort of uh, embracing the failure and, and getting constantly better, uh, you know, challenging yourself as much as you can in, 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 so in that you, you really start building that problem-solving ability in a way. That's the thing that will uh, that will sort of uh, make you stand out from the rest. I would say, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think people don't realize, do they, that that scientists don't just uh, approach a problem and fix it by magic somehow. You know, they take a look at it and say, "Oh, well, this is obvious." You know, most of most of the people who do science spend a lot of their time going, "Oh no, something didn't work or something's gone wrong." And I think that's that's maybe something that doesn't come across. To the, to the general public so much. Yeah, I mean, it's, there, there's that and also the fact that when, when you talk uh, 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 to the general public about science, it's always about the project, right? Uh, whether it's, you know, Elon Musk or shooting a rocket or uh, somebody discover a vaccine, uh, it's always about the project. And there's, this, there is this conception that as long as somebody's funding this, this, this should work uh, because, you know, science makes it happen. Uh, but the reality of it is that we cannot bend the rules. So, uh, you know, we can only try to understand them and try to convince them to do what we want, but, uh, it, it doesn't always, uh, happen, right? So there's, there's an element of uncertainty, which I think is not, not necessarily clear. And, uh, and I think it should be made more clear in a way, because it really gives a sense of what science is all about. It's not about sitting down and fixing the problem. It's about sitting down and thinking about whether or not you can actually fix it in the first place. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, fantastic. Well, much as this has been very enjoyable, Gabriele, and I'm sure we could go on for much longer, uh, I think we're just about getting to the end of our half an hour. Um, so thank you very much for coming along or joining us from the comfort of your home office. Um, and thanks to Matt for co-hosting. And, uh, yeah, I hope you guys have a pleasant afternoon. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks to you, you too. too. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Gabriele. Thank you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to that discussion with Gabrielli. Next time, we hope to bring you something a little different, an interview with Chris Brady and Heather Ratcliffe, two research software engineers based here at Warwick. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>